and you know we live in a post-fascist world you know um in which uh you know these techniques have been adopted by liberal democracy they have you know the public manipulation and state repression and you know they just do it as a matter of course like you don't have to have an extreme ideology to motivate it you just do it the death of god is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Chris Catrone, uh, track coach for Marxist, uh, contrarian, literally Hitler. Welcome back <laughs> to the Diet Soap podcast. And actually, I should change the banner. We'll do that right now. It's the Diet Soap Podcast. Thanks for coming back on. I'm glad to talk to you because the last time we spoke and I interviewed you, I felt as though you had a lot of things to say, and I was trying to clarify things and didn't quite manage to. And I feel yeah, like a little this bit of a sequel to our last discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this time we're going to have an opportunity to speak a bit more directly and hopefully less across purposes. Not that I disagreed so much with what you right. were saying before. Um, so what we're talking about, what the title of this is, is going to be the, the rational kernel of postmodernism, something like that. Maybe the rational kernel of post-structuralism. So where I want to start with you is, do you distinguish between postmodernism and post-structuralism? And how do you start to look for the rational kernel and postmodernism? I think that they're distinct, um, like we talked last time, uh, because Postmodernism, I mean, this is going to seem strange to you, but I would date postmodernism um, very early. What we're familiar with in terms of generic postmodernism and the word postmodernism is like post-World War II and kind of post-60s, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of a cultural turn in the 70s, and that's when, like, you know, starting in the 60s, but really in the 70s, was when Gramsci is rediscovered, subaltern studies gets underway, the Frankfurt School is rediscovered. A lot of translation of the Frankfurt School happens in the 70s. Um, even Lukács, is, you know, history and class consciousness is translated in the early 70s. And so, you know, there's that kind of postmodernism. I'm influenced in my perspective by a variety of thinkers, including Julian Rose, who sees postmodernism going back to neo-Kantianism, the late 19th century. Really? And, um, and the kind of aftermath of that, the discontents of that in the early 20th century. Another way of thinking about it, especially because postmodernism is so much French fries, you know, Derrida, Deleuze, Foucault, uh, Lacan, uh, is um, Heidegger. Did you say postmodernism or post-structuralism? Postmodernism. Postmodernism. Okay. Yeah, because post-structuralism, I think, is more like a method. Do you know? It's like a kind of um, reaction against and, an, you know, like deconstruction is like a kind of method uh you mm -hmm. know that's post-structuralist and is you know sort of specific to 
certain things, whereas I'm not sure if there's like a post-structuralist view of history and society, but there is a post-modernist view. I think that you're, you're quite right in a way about the methodology, although I'd also say post-structuralism has different concerns than post-modernist. Yeah, that's true. Too. Um, um, the, the way I think of it is post-modernism, I understand through Jameson. Mm-hmm. And 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 maybe, cultural logic of late capitalism, right? Which I read in uh, in the nineties, and um, and then reread and turned back to you know many times. And I read it before I read the Frankfurt School, and I was vaguely aware, but I wasn't really aware yet that he was such a major interlocutor for the Frankfurt School and kind of intermediary for the reception of the Frankfurt School, because his book before that, um, about like you know literature you know, is really about Lukács and the Frankfurt School. Um, in that postmodernism book, which must have come out when I was in college. I think it was like 89. Yeah, that's exactly when I was in college, yeah. And, um, you, know, was, you know, a little bit, I'm not sure what was going on here, but I was also amenable to the general thrust of, I mean, I think that in many respects, I mean, it's a different kind of book, but David Harvey's Condition of Postmodernity, Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I, that that didn't influence me as much until maybe later, and I've never really sat down with that. But the the thing about Jameson is that what I recall, especially having read the essay, which was published, I think, in the New Left Review before yeah. the book, yeah, um, is that for Jameson, he attempts to clarify what postmodernism is by thinking of it in primarily ascetic terms, and and then or through the arts, and then particularly through architecture so um which is where the term originates right you're right and so he, he references the manifesto learning from las vegas the turn away from high modernism towards a more populist approach to uh to architecture um combining low and high elements um tr- trying to take up a the find the, the what's good in in mass culture um and what I, you know, just sort of put a very gross kind of reading onto this, or very, uh, you know, this is not as detailed as it might be. But in general, the turn away from high modernism, I take to be as a turn away from the ambitions of high modernism and an acceptance of late capitalism or the the the, the lowering of her, of horizon. Um, high modernism was had an utopian aims; they were trying mm-hmm. to. Uh, create new ways of living and and mm-hmm. through efficiency and 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 spare design and and um you know junk culture being embraced was a, a way of embracing what's already happened like mm-hmm. you know, the highways are here the neon signs are here um the future's already been created we don't have to try doesn't to- he also have a treatment of um literature though like the lillo yeah, he does. As, like the postmodernist novel. I mean, because what I'm thinking yeah. about here is, um, and this would be like a point of contact with Harvey, is that modernism would have been understood. And, you know, I would have a lot of challenges to this view, by the way, the use of this language. Mm-hmm. Modernism would be seen as the cultural aspect of a form of capitalism in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And then postmodernism is, is a, a change with capitalism in its kind of cultural forms. Um, and, you know, it is an abandonment of a kind of utopianism, but the modernism of the early 20th century would have been a kind of capitalist utopianism. 
Yeah. Oh, yes. Right. 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 And so, yeah. you know, and then of course one could say that neoliberalism is a kind of an abandonment of utopianism. You know, postmodernism is abandonment of utopianism in that respect. Or you could say it's, it's just a different form of capitalist utopianism. Right. That I think those both, that's fair. Um, what Jameson says is that the early modern, high modern moment was uh, obsessed with uh, differences in time, mm -hmm. whereas the postmodern is, is thinks of things in terms of space. So mm -hmm. um, that, and that, that seems like, you know, at first blush, like, yeah, you need time for space and you need space for time. What is he talking about? What, but the, he was talking specifically about the cultural differences that arise from a, a capitalism, which is defined by uneven development where you can move, um, because you can move from, a, 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 like the urban centers where everything is hurried and you can see the frenetic pace of capitalist production and exchange taking place and you're, it makes demands upon you and, and forces you to live on a certain timeline. And then you can move away from that back to the countryside into a slower pace, different form of life. I mean, perhaps, right? Because uh, I guess the way, yeah. I'm just, I'm just paraphrasing James. Well, I mean, it's in terms of like an aesthetic form or a style, you know, because that's the, you know, from architecture, we get postmodernism as a style and then that bleeds into other kind of art forms. We get the notion that there's a modernist style and a postmodernist style. But the time and space thing, yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with this, that, um, that there's more of homogenization of space in postmodernism, mm -hmm. right? I mean, well, well, there's a, there's no longer a sense of historical time in postmodernism. So all that you're focused on is space and, and everything that appears, appears in the same moment, therefore is, it's just a matter of relating in space rather than through time. Right. So there's kind of globalization, anti-globalization, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so it seems to have a different kind of dynamic than the dynamic left and right, mm -hmm. which we you know was the earlier dynamic of like progressive versus progressivism versus reactionary, mm -hmm. you know, kind of trying to go back. And, you know, I would just, so I would, this is not the rational kernel of postmodernism exactly that I had in mind. Right. No, I'm just, just trying to find right. how I think of. Postmodernism is associated with late capitalism and uh, a, a cultural form that takes place once the commodity form is dominating almost all aspects of, inter of life internationally. That's how. Right. Now, this is kind of a retrospective, um, funny thing, though. And again, the point of contact between postmodernism per se and the Frankfurt School, because one thing that we have to remember, mm -hmm. I'm a Frankfurt School person, so that's going to be my mm -hmm. kind of like. Yeah locus here now in the 70s and 80s i think that the french fries the postmodernists were received in very similar terms to the frankfurt school and and you know especially in the anglophone world and in, in britain and the united states i think that they were harmonized kind of ironically given the fact that there would have been a great deal of hostility towards um postmodernism in its roots by the frankfurt school you know, like I said, Heidegger, Heidegger has a huge effect. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this, mm -hmm. and it does, ref it does actually relate to time and space, but in a kind of mediated way, mm -hmm. um, is reification. In other words, that the, you could say that the critique of reification might privilege time 
over space in the sense that, you know, we want to push through these kind of ossified forms, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of idea. And, you know, it's really unfortunate, I think, because, um, you know, it's kind of like the way people assimilate Lenin and Sorel, you know, it's, it's this kind of actionism and, you know, nowadays accelerationism, which is poorly understood. And I have students come up to me and say, well, it sounds like Marxism is accelerationist. And I'm like, okay, that's not really accelerationism, but yeah, I kind of understand tell, what you mean. Tell me, remind me, I've known the name Sorel. I, I'm, the ideas don't just drop into my mind when you say he's an anarcho-syndicalist, mm -hmm. right? And so he privileges like action, right? So there's like a kind of, you know, we've talked about this before, like um, voluntarism versus determinism. Mm -hmm. You know, like the social change going to happen because of objective logic, or is it going to happen as a matter of, of will, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you know, and those two things don't necessarily contradict each other but their experience is contradictory mm -hmm. right in other words that in the face of a kind of reified world then one wants to break out and one does the will and the sort of ethic of action which actually you know really has more in common with fascism than marxism and mm -hmm. and then with lenin but you know what happens in the 20th century you get this weird anti-totalitarianism and then it's like, well, you know, fascism and Stalinism and Lenin, you know, kind of the same. <laughs> um, and, you know, Benito Mussolini, who was a Marxist, but then invents fascism, right? Because he's got tired of the Second International with their kind of evolutionary view of history. And he's like, no, we need to act, mm -hmm. right? And Marxism is too kind of objectivistic, right? This kind of thing. And I think that this is all like really deeply unfortunate. But it is what happened historically, you know, especially in the crisis of Marxism, Marxism seemed to disintegrate into like objectivistic and subjectivistic sides. Like the social Democrats were seen as objectivistic and Leninists were seen as subjectivistic. But then also Stalinism had the kind of objectivism too. Right. right. Okay. So let, let, I mean, I, I'm following along, but I want to make sure that everyone who's watching who doesn't know as much as you do and uh, or even as much as i do can follow along so just to be so what we were talking about before was how from the in the late 20th century and like say 70s 80s on the postmodern moment arose through architecture jameson saw this as a uh for closing um the possibility of historical change due to the domination of of capitalism late capitalism and the 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 to totalizing hegemonic uh, uh, power of the of capital and a global coming to an eternal present. Yeah, and we come into this eternal present, which which resonates with me as someone who's read Gita Board, who wrote about that in the '60s, and the, the and who is also very concerned about with and Jameson's up, aware of that too. Oh, I know he is very you know, much. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and is concerned with taking up history, mm -hmm. um, and and freedom being a way the way in which individuals and society can be responsible for and conscious of their develop their own development uh in history making you know shaping their path forward basically that's what being free means um for right so a kind of historical fatalism versus a historical voluntarism is right replaced by a kind of 
ahistoricism or ahistorical eternal present, which is projected backwards. Right. And what you just raised before was, okay, but this can also be thought of in terms of, are we embracing the dynamic that has been shaping history up to now, which is this capitalist form, or are we trying to break from it somehow, smash that form right. in, a, in, in an act? Um, and uh, so now, and then the question becomes, so are we, if you're, if you're trying to uh, somehow embrace that dynamic in order to transform it, then you're an accelerationist, right? It's and just funny. So, um, I teach Benjamin, Walter Benjamin, and he's misread as like, um, you know, he's got a line in the Paralipomena to the theses on the philosophy of history or the concept of history, that's a better translation of the title, that uh, Marx said that revolutions are the locomotive of history, but maybe uh, revolutions are the attempt to pull the emergency brake on the locomotive of history. Mm -hmm. Right. And I always have to, you know, warn my students, you know, it's not an either or for Benjamin, it's both. In other right. words, like revolution is the locomotive of history, but it's also the attempt to pull the emergency brake on the locomotive of history. And I use other Benjamin's writings to illustrate that because uh, he, you know, he's very fond of the surrealists, although critical of them as well. And they, they're like fascinated with this kind of fixed explosive, you know, the simultaneous, like, you know, bursting and freezing kind of, mm. you know, effect. And so, you know, all of this, you know, obviously people outside of Marxism, you know, Marxism regards uh, the historical moment. People are trying to grasp, you know, their, their experience of society mm -hmm. um, in various different ways. And the idea is that spontaneously people do express the contradiction of capitalism through attempts to, you know, capture, objectify their experience in art, in culture. And, but also one could say that, you know, concrete labor forms, concrete ways that we work, and this is where Harvey is good in the condition of postmodernity. The changing character of the actual concrete activity of labor itself changes. Um, and, you know, because what we're trying to do when we're working, even at that fine-grained, atomized particular level, is sort of master our experience of space and time that society is confronting us with. Right. And now the, the problem being, you know, the way this is usually understood, and that's why I said that's not really like a methodology exactly, in the traditional sense, is that it's not like capitalism is a form of space or is a form of time. It's a contradiction of space and a contradiction of time. So there is like bourgeois time and bourgeois space, you know. There I is. think capitalism is a social relation mm -hmm. around production primarily mm -hmm. that then has the consequences. And, and not in any fixed or static way, mm -hmm. but of shaping the way in which we understand our relationship to the world. Um, and, and often enough, we understand our relationship to the world as a relationship to alien objects outside of ourselves and mm -hmm. not as something we're participating in through our social relations and production. Well, wait, but, but we do. Or in other words, there's bourgeois society and then there's capitalism. And this is something that, this is my... One of my only, if I had to say, what's the one thing that I want everyone to know? Mm -hmm. There's a difference. There's indeed a contradiction between bourgeois society and capitalism. Meaning capitalism is the self-contradiction of 
bourgeois social relations, meaning, you know, people on the left will say, well, capital is not a thing. It's a social relation. Well, actually for Marx, it's a contradiction of the bourgeois social relation. That's the whole bourgeois social relation versus industrial forces of production. People forget that's a contradiction. And that means a contradiction between the socioeconomic base and the ideological superstructure. It also means there's a contradiction between social being and consciousness. But doesn't it also mean that at the site of production, mm -hmm. there's a contradiction between the, um, let's say, constant capital or the machinery or the, mm -hmm. the and the human mm -hmm. beings who are working together to, to make that. That's a manifestation. That's right. Oh, yeah. So you have um, the space and time of machines and the space and time of humans, mm -hmm. right? The problem there being that we might, we might end up falsely naturalizing the space and time of humans. You know, we don't know, like, you know, what the limits of the human capacity for relating to the universe in space and time are, but we can say that there is a disjunction in all the attempts that we have, you know, and deeply in our psychology, the way we experience space and time. There's a disjunction between that and a kind of social dynamic unleashed by capitalism. And again, that's so concretely it can manifest as like a kind of modern times by Charlie Chaplin, you know, yeah. contradiction of the human and the machine, but the human is far more variable than, than we might give credit to if we think of it just in those terms, if we think there well, was this kind of ape. And then if you're, you're really going to make a film about the contradiction between social relations and, and the forces of production, as I'm understanding it, what you'd have is a film where Charlie Chaplin is fired or let go. Is <laughs> replaced by a machine, and then the the company goes out of business. Uh -huh. that, that that's that's, that's the, a real manifestation of contradiction, yeah, right? That is um, because you know we do we do try to mechanize ourselves. I mean, you know, Doug, I don't know if you had this in your um, educational experience. I certainly did. Mm -hmm. The the '60s they vilified Taylorism. Oh yeah. Right, they really attack Taylorism, and I'm like, Taylor is a labor reformer who's trying to change the work process so that there are fewer injuries and deaths of workers on the assembly line. But they turn it into, oh, look, he's photographing. He's trying to turn people into machines. I'm like, actually, he wants to change the machines so that they're more amenable to humans. And he's looking at, like, you know, how humans move, right? And he's looking at how machines move, and he's trying to, like, you know, it's not like, oh, look, this is subjecting human beings to this mechanical imperative of capitalism. It's like, that wasn't the intent. I mean, maybe that was the effect. Yeah, in modern times, there's a critique of Taylorism. They, there is, they, there's a they drag in the... There's huh? a reading of it. Yeah, yes. The, the feeding machine, the guy, the scientist comes in and says, uh -huh. he can keep working through lunch. Look, this will feed him his corn. And it comes up and, like, Woody Allen stole this later and did this uh -huh. all the time. Uh -huh. It was like... You know, like, I mean, it's a funny, you know, but again, what's the goal of that efficiency? Well, you know, to make capital more efficient also means making humans more efficient. And that means actually feeding and clothing and housing and not injuring humans, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's not terribly efficient to mutilate humans. No. Right. So like, you know, but again, I, I just, you know, I just want to be careful because lurking in the background is Heidegger. Okay, let's talk about the bourgeois. Before we go to Heidegger, mm -hmm. let's talk about the bourgeois um, 
you know, Leonardo da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci, right? Mm. Is he trying to mechanize the human? Exactly. No. no. Right. But this is the way the mid 20th century saw it. The Vitruvian man, it's like, look, oh, you know, like mm -hmm. it goes back to the beginning of bourgeois society. And Foucault's got a lot of this. I mean, he's kind of ambiguous about this. I mean, you know, so you and Ashley were talking about Foucault and she mm -hmm. was like, you know, he's right about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is he a Marxist or not? And well, he's not a Marxist, but he is in dialogue with Marx. And as Ashley observed, he really has a lot in common with Weber and also obviously with Heidegger because Heidegger is influencing Foucault. And, you know, these technologies of this and that, like this Foucaultian jargon that we have in the world, you know, technologies, gender, technologies, of race, mm -hmm. technologies. That's all Heideggerian, Foucaultian stuff because everything's a technology, mm -hmm. right? And, and, you know, Heidegger's willing to trace it all the way back to ancient Greece and say, you know, that's when this dynamic was unleashed. And it's kind of like, you know, sure. And again, you know where I got my Heidegger when I was in college? Mm -hmm. I read on my own Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Mechanics. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's where I got my Heidegger, I think. For, for, mm -hmm. um, but of Heidegger running around. Yes. Yeah. And Include the board, by the way. Oh, uh, I no, don't want to hear that. But it is okay. there. Okay. And so this is the well, thing. Well, let's talk about how it's there because I want to. Just briefly sketch my understanding of Heidegger. Yeah, I have not deeply read. I've, uh, you know, I've read the last thing, and maybe the only thing I really read by Heidegger that's really written by Heidegger. I read an Adbusters magazine uh, hmm. a few years ago. I went to a, 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 a thrift shop and bought an old oh, yeah. copy of Adbusters magazine from the late nineties, and they had a, well, a lecture. Doug, yeah, <laughs> maybe in New York too. Yeah, maybe in Chicago. I, I don't know though. I think all those bookstores are out of business. Oh, it's great. I mean, I love Portland for that reason, you know. And maybe oh, I right. shouldn't, but I love it. No, 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 reason. it's okay. <laughs> and I went in. I bought Adbusters magazine, and I was not surprised, but I was, I kind of went, oh, hmm, because there was this uh, address that he gave on uh, tech, uh, technology, and technological thinking. Yeah, and trying to develop a space for thinking that was not technical right. of the technological right. moment, and um, I read it and thought it was really pretty deeply romantic and reactionary right. stuff, yeah. um, and that it didn't hold up as uh, as a as an argument. You know, it didn't hold up philosophically. It 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 was it might have held up in terms of sentiment or rhetorical uh -huh. style, but it didn't hold up very well. And I think of Heidegger in terms of trying to solve old philosophical problems, like how do we know the world? What, what you know, um, you know, and, and he, he will claim, well, we're thrown into a world that already provides us with a form of knowledge that we can only then use reason to access when things start to fall apart. So you don't think about how the door knob works until you can't turn it. Um, mm -hmm. Until then, it's just a, a, a part of this, being in the world mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. it's not something that reason gives you access to and um and that's how i conceive of heidegger is wanting to find a way to not have to be engaged in the world critically or using reason as a guide but to find a way to fit into a world that's already there to support you and the, the already well this is critique that the world is kind of constituted in such a way that we like are unaware or you know forgetful or neglect 
that, you know, um, you know, and again, he, he wants to understand where that kind of blindness came from and he's, you know, critiquing, you know, that kind of, um, blindness. It seems to me to like want to embrace that as a kind of ground, uh, ontological ground that, that, that the way in which we are thrown into a world that already uh, that's making demands on us already has systems of mastery already has and already uh, has a place for us in it so that and that that form of thinking that a kind of esteem is for, superior to and to be embraced as opposed to the technical thinking of of mathematical reason and and that that will dissect the world and and uh, that mm. what really comes prior to to crisis right. or problems rather than uh come uh come sorry really comes after crisis and problems and mm -hmm. which doesn't then what's the prior to that what's foundational to that is a, a way of being in the world now this is my popularized understanding of Heiger from reading adbusters magazine so you correct me if i've gotten them wrong well i mean it's um i mean what i'd say about heidegger is i mean because this came up with you and ashley mm -hmm. You know, because uh, you were talking about dialectic of enlightenment, you were talking about Horkheimer and Adorno, and you were talking about the first chapter of dialectic of enlightenment, the concept of enlightenment. Interestingly, you know, um, originally the book was meant to be titled Philosophical Fragments, and that first chapter was supposed to be called The Dialectic of Enlightenment. But then the publisher was like, Philosophical Fragments, that's not going to work. And so suggested taking the title of the first chapter and making it the title of the book, in which case, the first chapter then became the concept of enlightenment, which has a much more kind of positive kind of notion, you know, like that he, they're like telling you what enlightenment is rather than engaging in a dialectic of enlightenment, which is of course mm. what they're doing. Now, you know, so when we talk about like a Heidegger or Foucault or Weber, even Nietzsche, mm -hmm. Weber is a Nietzschean, Heidegger is a Nietzschean, Foucault is a Nietzschean. Mm -hmm. And, um, and of course, this is uh, either a virtue or a damning thing against the Frankfurt School that they're Nietzschean too, right? And but it's controversial in the Frankfurt School. I don't but, think that's even how we should think about these things. No, no, I know it's, but this is how people do, right? In other words, mm -hmm. this is like a Gabriel Rockdale type, you know, intellectual history as like forensic for like culpability yeah. or something i love colombo you know i want to solve the crime too but first you have to make sure that you're actually dealing with the murder before you, you also, what, what's open. the crime what's the yeah, crime right right is there a crime did the frankfurt school commit a crime does is zizek committing a crime and what would that crime be and crime against what crime against whom the dispute if you will between like the frankfurt school and heidegger is that heidegger is grasping something but he's mystifying it Right. That he is, it's not like he's wrong. Like what he's saying is right, mm -hmm. but he's mystifying the problem. And, and one of the ways that we would, to invoke Jameson, always historicize, right? Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So how do you demystify things? Well, you historically specify them. You say it's not 4,000 years of Western metaphysics. It's a hundred years of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's not, you know, since 1619, but it's since the 1970s, mm -hmm. you know, that the, the, that the blacks are suffering in the United States from deindustrialization, not from the endless legacy of slavery. Mm. Right. 
because they were making great advances in the 20th century up through the 60s, but then they suffered disproportionately from the effect of the industry. And, that, and to say that is very counter to the mainstream narrative. Yeah, mainstream narrative. Only the 60s that when black people started to finally achieve some equality. And now today, of course, right. they, they're there almost. I mean, Barack Obama happened. And well, that's, if you look at it in terms of the ruling class, I mean, it's like a funny, and of course, you know, what I just said is Adolf Reed. Right. 100% Adolf Reed, mm -hmm. that um, the process of deindustrialization really mystified capitalism. And one of the mystifications of capitalism is to call it racism. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, you know, maybe you could make an argument about an earlier form of capitalism in the United States that was very much based on racism. But really what you're talking about now, racism is not illuminating something, but it's actually obscuring something. And right. when you say racism is obscuring it, you mean not only that the racist ideas themselves are obscuring. <clears throat> let's say anti-racism is obscuring. Yeah, anti-racism anti is obscuring. It's like a funny thing. I was listening to... um a podcast this morning, uh, there's like a libertarian Comcast a podcast activity that was comparing me to like Caleb Maupin. It was like Chris Catrone, you know, and what about these, what are uh, these Marxists? And, you know, and then, um, Sean Gabb, who I guess is a British libertarian. Hmm. And it was something like, you know, what do libertarians and Marxists have in common? Oh, well, let's look at Chris Catrone because they were like, you know, most, most so-called Marxists and leftists are just Democrats, but this Chris mm -hmm. Catrone over here clearly isn't mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And they were, they were kind of struggling with it. And, but I realized that the, um, you know, the issue is they said, okay, they were kind of saying, oh, Chris Catrone is like, um, He's like Caleb Muppin. He says, you know, of course we need to care about racism and sexism, but look at the way the Democrats ruin it, right? And I thought mm -hmm. that was interesting, rather than just saying, oh, well, some like dinosaur Marxist who doesn't care about these things. And I was thinking as I was listening to this, I was like, yeah, of course I'm against anti-racism as this kind of ridiculous ideology, but but only as someone who's against racism. Heidegger is also undialectical, right? Um, he would see the dialectic, you know, as this thing that started with, it's very Nietzschean, started with Socrates mm -hmm. and then developed. And of course the dialectic is, is the problem. Like in other words, the dialectic might describe what's going on, but this is the metaphysical trap that we're in, right? It would turn it into this kind of like way of thinking that goes back thousands of years in the West, like this Western way of thinking, mm -hmm. you know, um, I mean, I wanted to say about this, that there is a Lucian Goldman thesis that Heidegger is responding to Lukács. Mm. Um, and you know, there's, there's a fair amount of evidence for that. I mean, certainly Heidegger's responding to Marxism, definitely, mm -hmm. you know? And so again, what's his beef with Marxism? Well, he thinks that Marxism is onto something, but Marxism shares the same assumptions as Western philosophy and is therefore as blind as Western philosophy is. Mm -hmm. Right. That, say more about that. What are those, what are those assumptions? Well, for instance, um, he, you know, labor metaphysics, you know, the relation to nature. Any, any kind of metaphysics, right? Not just the labor metaphysics, but any well, kind Western of metaphysics. Western metaphysics. Western right. Metaphysics. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so Western metaphysics in particular, going back to ancient Greece, that basically Marxism is too bourgeois. It's too bourgeois insofar as bourgeois society really does have an origin in classical antiquity, which it kind of does. I mean, I, you know, I always like to point out that Heidegger did his PhD on Don Scotus, mm-hmm. right? And he, you know, you could say that the university of being, you know, the Don Scotus medieval scholasticism, that that is really what Heidegger is saying throughout his career, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, the, the way I think of Heidegger's critique of Marx is this, is that I remember seeing him interviewed and he said, uh, Marx uh, said the point of the, the, in the past, philosophers have tried to describe the world and know it. The point is to change it. And uh, Heidegger answered, said, but of course he's, he, he appears to be changing the aim of philosophy, but he is not because in order to, to uh, change the world, you have to know it. As a as a technician, as someone who's going to intervene in right. instruments of reason, you right. have to know it. Right. Um, right. But what what I thought is that well, um, what Marx is claiming is not that oh we should stop trying to know the world. And then since Heidegger, Heidegger is quite right in 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 yeah. saying oh well he is Western or ra- rational and uh-huh, or, yeah. you know, right. Um, but that, he, it's, uh, that Marx poses as anti-philosophical, but of course he is still philosophical. Well, yeah, but right. So, but yes, sure. he, yes, he wants to realize philosophy, not just not destroy it. Right. Um, uh, but so but you know, Heidegger is sneaky. He's sneaky about that kind of thing. Meaning, he's kind of like that's like a cheap shot, and he's sneaky also because he certainly knows better. Meaning, it's the thesis on fire. And it's really about how the left Hegelians found themselves in a position where they can only rail against the world and, you know, show how, you know, why it is the way it is, but really couldn't say anything, how we're going to change it. Right. And I, and for me, the critique from Marx, the left Hegelians is in the German ideology. Right. What, what, right. And, and which is where the theses on Feuerbach are taken. Right, right, right. And, and in the German ideology, what he rails against with the with um, the Hegelians, young Hegelians, yeah. young Hegelians mm-hmm. is that they are attempting to change things at the level of thought yes. and understanding and yep. knowledge alone, right. as if everything resides in our heads only. Whereas um, Marx, I think, as a, an actual Hegelian, uh, understood that the connection between the material world and uh, our understanding coming out of our mode of production, out of the way in which we alter the world, and the way in which we collectively organize and alter the world and reproduce ourselves. And Heidegger has nothing to say on that level. Well, he says that the very conception that we are products of and enacting and reproducing a mode of production mm-hmm. itself assumes too much, right? So he he could sort of takes. You know, you could say that Heidegger, like I said, he's sneaky because, you know, he's writing mostly in the era of Stalinism. Mm-hmm. And so there is this kind of vulgar Marxism out there that he can kind of rail against. And then he can, mm-hmm. like, as he sees fit, he can kind of bring Marx in to say, oh, but Marx also understood and these Marxists. But Marx, right? And I even had, there was a philosophy professor at the University of Chicago who said that Heidegger was a Marxist. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, he believes that there's such a thing as a labor metaphysics. Right? And I was like, huh. 
Yeah. Right. And I thought it was going to be that, like, asserting that, that there's a labor metaphysics, and like, you know, rather than observing that there is a labor metaphysics, right? I guess if you have a critique of a labor metaphysics, because you think that it's a thing that should be overcome, you know, that there is this thing, then I guess Marx and Heidegger agree, right? They just disagree on the nature of the problem there and also, how, of course, how to overcome it. Right. Whereas this, you know, philosopher was essentially an analytic philosopher, right? Was like, well, there is no such thing as a labor metaphysics, right? There is, it doesn't exist. Right? Um, and so deposit that it does exist is itself a kind of mystification, right? And it's kind of like, well, no, it really does. I mean, you know, the analytic philosophers are not great on society, they really aren't. Uh, meaning society is a metaphysical category. Does society exist? Or are there just these things that humans do, right? Are there social relations? Do social relations exist, right? Um, or are there just these con conventions that we have, right? Okay, what is it about analytic philosophy that distinguishes it from continental philosophy? Why isn't? Why are these things different? I think the way in which the analytic philosophers turn to uh, uh, and attempted to understand the world simply through um, either language or mathematics or or some sort of uh, logical structure that we could then find um, in, in our own cognition, whether it was mm -hmm. whether it was um, in a Kantian way or through like mm -hmm. uh, Chomskyan linguistics, mm -hmm. it was always sort of like in in, in inscribed in individuals and. The reality was a product of the structure of our brains or the structure right. of the language itself. Right. Um, and, and it was something that, again, to go back to kind of Heidegger, we were already in. Yes. This was a yeah. way of being in the world. That's right. Um, whether there. it was linguistic right. or, um, uh, or if it was, you know, a, a Kantian categories or. That's or, the connection with structuralism and post-structuralism, by the way, is that kind of linguistic determinism. Right. You know, that's the point of contact, which is, you know, again, independent of Heidegger, but then they harmonize in the thought of the 20th century. In other words, there's a kind of a spontaneous affinity that people start to see it this way, mm -hmm. that we are somehow produced by language as opposed to language being a tool that we use and then we become alienated from it. And then it seems to dominate us. But the question then would be, well, you know, it's like technology itself. It's like, you know, or have we just let the genie out of the bottle and now it dominates us? Or, you know, is it like a quasi-natural object, you know? Um, or is it a tool that we have to master, right, That's a, that we've created, that we continue to create and recreate, and that it has escaped our control in a very specific way rather than in this kind of general way of, oh, whenever you create a tool, it masters you. It, you don't just master it, right? Like when you when humans create a tool, they change the being of the world and it redounds back on them. And it's like, well, that might be true in some very general way, but, the, but behind it, in other words, why Heidegger would conceive of things this way, Marxists would say, well, that's a phenomenon of capitalism. In other words, you know, because I don't think the ancient Greeks or medieval Europeans or certainly bourgeois thinkers would have 
seen it just that way, right? Would have seen it, it would have struck them as very strange, the idea that we are products of language or that we are the products of technology, right? It would be like, well, no, you know, we make these things and it, they have their effect, right? There would be a much more kind of confident, optimistic view, which Heidegger says that, well, that's blindness. That's like a kind of a hubris that's like, you know, we think we're using it, but it's actually using us. And of course, that's capital, right? Except of course, capital is us. Capital well, is right. Us, right? We, are, we are ultimately responsible for, for this form of social relations being reproduced every day. It's very difficult to get away, to get away from it. We aren't just provided each day with like tools to create some, to set up a new social relationship. All the tools that we've created, all the ways of thinking that we've created, are aiming us back to this form of production. So to change away from it will take some time and collective effort and politics. I mean, and again, Heidegger's unclear about why that's the case specifically, meaning, you know, why it's so difficult to change it. And so, you know, you said it took us thousands of years to get into this predicament and thousands of years to get out of it. Whereas, you know, Marxism obviously has a more optimistic view yeah. of the ability yeah. to overcome capitalism. Yeah. Right. We're not yeah, going to be yeah. exploring space and still like contemplating Heideggerian thoughts a thousand what, years. What that doesn't notice is how different the rate of change has been yeah. over that thousand years. It's not like right. bit by bit over a thousand years, day by day, we accrued all these changes and here we are. It's like we went along fairly consistently and then we change and then we change even faster and change even faster. Um, yeah. So what is the rational core here in Heidegger and Nietzsche? What do, what, what do we need to hold on to? with them well i mean differently you know i'd say that um i would say nietzsche is a liberal you know in distress and heidegger is more of a just a reactionary in other words there's a great deal of heidegger that nietzsche would reject rightly mm. um and even the whole notion of like the will to power is very different in nietzsche than the idea of power in foucault for example oh yeah right? So, you know, the question is, well, what changed between powers and and let me think about it. In Foucault, power is alienated from us. It's not the will, something you will towards as an act of creativity in order to change and create new myths and new ways of being. Power is something that has been externalized and and is maybe the major operating force in the world, according to Foucault. We participate in it. He does have this funny way of thinking about in terms of biopolitics. I mean, he's just, Foucault's weird, because I think that he is a conservative, but then he seems to be an anarchist. It's kind of like, well, how contradictory is that, really? <laughs> contradictory. It's, it I was reading a, Adbusters magazine when I come, came up on the Heidegger. Heidegger, and yeah. presumably that's an endorsement. Like, they didn't publish Heidegger. Oh, no. right, oh, no. Precious. No, no, no. Right? It was a um, full-on endorsement of Heidegger. Right? Huh. So it's like, you know, I would say that, you know, what the rational core is, mm. is again, that postmodernism is registering a problem and especially a problem as it manifests after the failure of socialism. Now, again, we're always in this place of like, why did socialism fail? Why did Marxism fail? It must be, you know, again, the Foucault answer or the Heidegger answer would be Marxism didn't go deep enough, right? It didn't grasp the problem in its depth. And so it couldn't solve the problem because it only grasped the problem superficially. 
And in fact, well, in Postone right? says that about traditional Marxism. Check it out. Postone's a Heideggerian. No, no, no. Yes. Okay. Explain to me how. Yes. Well, I mean, look, Moise said in his interview for Platypus, I'll refer mm -hmm. to the Platypus Review interview done by some of my students. Mm -hmm. He said that, uh, you know, he found the reactionary critique of capitalism far more compelling than the left, right? Nietzsche, Heidegger, like he found that far more compelling. And then he discovered that traditional Marxism is superficial, but Marx himself is deep. And then he's like, well, but of course, Marx's politics is traditional Marxism. So Marx couldn't follow through on his own insights. But that shouldn't concern us because the insights are important. Yes. So he divorces the theory from the practice. He really I'm sorry. I guess I'm a reactionary now because that sounds true to me. This is why, you know, in my pedagogy. What did he find? What did he find when he said he found these reactionary or would you say romantic mm -hmm. uh, critiques? Of yeah, he, he used the language to the romantic critique is deep. Right, because it's like raising all these questions that traditional Marxists like ignore. And it's like, that's not true, really, you know? And, and, you know, it's based on this whole idea of like Engelsism and Marxism, you know, I mean, Marx will say these things. It's a very naive view of the history of Marxism. He's like, oh, you know, Marxism is really Engelsism. By the way, these libertarians that I was listening to this morning, they were like, well, you know, the Communist Manifesto wasn't written by Marx, it was written by Engels. And I'm like, that is not really true. Because right. Engels wrote a rough draft that we have, and the final manifesto is quite different from the draft, right? Um, so, but, you know, but there is this idea that, like, there's, like, Engelsism and there's Marxism. True Marxism. And traditional Marxism is Engelsism. And, you know, like, Marx... Oh, is this kind of dark genius, you know, kind of like Heidegger? Here's all I would want to point out in response to what you just said about my, uh, I'm a fanboy, my, my God, you know, who I've never met really, except I've interviewed him a couple of times, Postone, who I think is really brilliant. And, and, uh, well, brilliant. Just, of course, but what I want to, what I want to do to defend him is say, yes, it's true that Postone, and he may have said this about reactionary critiques or romantic mm -hmm. critiques. What Postone means, I think, when he says we need to go deeper is precisely that we need to be Western philosophers. We need to be uh, as fully reasonable as we can be and as critically as we can be. Sure, sure, and sure. Heidegger is rejecting that. Heidegger is rejecting Heidegger's the not technical. Exactly, no. He's not exactly rejecting it outright. What he's saying is we have to be cautious. Right. So he has this kind of like, you know, this idea of care and circumspection. Right. So he's like, you know, that, you know, basically he does ultimately want to stand in the Western tradition. But he wants to be circumspect about it rather than simply inhabiting it. Um, All I would say regarding Pistone again, to go back to that is just if if it is the case historically, let's say somewhere within the second international or in and if not then then in the you know soviet union um there was a a, a misunderstanding and simplification of marx's categories uh, that was put forward there was more than that doug there was a 
kind of totalitarian bureaucratic agenda to actively distort Marxism for political reasons. Right. Well, absolutely. Right. But I mean, right. but, let's say, let's, but I, I mean, I think I think you could yeah. like I think Rosa Luxemburg is a great Marxist who is still nonetheless worth reading critically around, let's say, points of economics or some of the ways in which she would, you know, some of the claims that she would make are absolutist to Marxism. I'm not so sure she's right. Like that you have to think that, um, what was she, that, that, uh, that the, the class, um, project and the development of the working class necessarily leads to the, the workers into a proletarian, uh, struggle, proletarian struggle that otherwise you don't have a working class if it's not engaged in a, and oh, sure. well, that's Marx. That's Marx. Marx thinks well, that he does. Well, so does he think that, that you can't reproduce, that capital can't reproduce itself through labor time without a political struggle from the working class? Well, once the, once the, the dynamic is set in motion, then I guess it can continue. But it was set in motion by the class struggle. Oh, oh well, yeah, sure. Right. It was part of a socialist and bourgeois revolution that could create right. these conditions. But that doesn't yeah, mean the early, the early struggles of the working class in light of industrialization is what, what, I mean, you could also say that the workers asserting their bourgeois rights is the very source of industrialization. You know, it's, it's creates this dynamic. Yeah, I know Spencer talks about this quite a lot and it, he points to it in the, in capital and it's absolutely there. And I know about it and, you know, it's a major point in the uh, history. It's of, a little of bit of an absurd point for us. You know, because again, we think the well, forty-hour workday. Yeah. I mean, like if you didn't have the limit, ten-hour work. Yes, but the forty-hour work week, ten-hour work day. A forty-hour work day was actually a sixty-hour work week. It was ten hours a day, six days a week, and that was considered a major reform. Right. Okay. Right. We get but, but now off. we get right. now we get forty. Uh, if we're lucky, not really. I mean, but that's why the people were massacred at Haymarket Square. They're asking for right, exactly. a work week, and the capital workers were like, "What is this utopianism?" open fire right. but but in <laughs> fact but in fact um if without it the there w the capitalist class would not have been pressured to innovate technologically and and, and industrialize it's a very complicated process right because right. it's also contingent you know Pistone yeah. talks about this it's contingent as well as logical because um you know a lot of the early class struggle of the working class, like in England in the, in the first industrial revolution is motivated by like how unchristian it is to work people this way. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to give them Sunday off, you know, otherwise it's unchristian and it's kind of like, well, what's that? Do you know, what, is that just like a, a handy thing or did the kind of Protestant Christianity play a role? It might have played a role. In other words, well, I think it did absolutely. But right. on the but the, on the other side of it, I do think that without labor struggle demanding a sixty-hour work week, there would have been pressures, just intrinsic, necessary pressures within the capitalist. There are, there are that would have also, driven innovation, but maybe not as quickly or quite. They're the also deflected it. now. Like in other words, now, you know, um, in the post-proletarian world that Postone thought we lived in, because he did. That we live in a post-proletarian world. Post I never understood how he could say that, uh, but by his own logic, I never understood how he could say that because oh, he because... admitted that the that yeah automation is happening. Yes, but you know that the 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 working class could shrink, 
for a time. He was a little bit incoherent, Doug, I have to say. And that's what one of the things made him uncomfortable about me is that I wouldn't leave it alone. Pressured him on this. That I basically said, well, because he would have a critique of the left as prematurely prematurely post-proletarian. But then he would also say, well, we have post-proletarian movements. And those really have to be, you know, how we achieve socialism. But he would, it would be, he would do this thing where he'd say, well, proletarian socialism is necessary, but not sufficient. And I thought, well, why not? And because again, for him, if it's proletarian socialism, then it will just be capital reconstituting. And so it has to be broader than just proletarian socialism. My perspective, what you have to do is say, the proletarian political movement has to not aim at reproducing the proletariat right. when it takes dic- when you create a dictatorship of the but proletariat. But you could also, you know, Lenin, the Tribune of the People. In other words, that the proletariat, the class conscious proletariat, like constituted in a socialist party, has to champion all the oppressed. Right. Okay. I mean, That's, sure. Right. It has to lead a kind of more a broader democratic discontent in society than it can't be like narrow workerist or yeah, but how could i mean if, if you're workerist then you're not transforming and transcending the class position i mean if you're workerist then you're obviously creating policies that are protecting your own particular interests you might as well just be well rather than being workerist why not just be pro uh you know ford ford workers well I mean, okay so you know how it works how this kind of plays out mm-hmm. is that you know, it's like the PMC anxiety that people have, right? The yeah. professional managerial class anxiety. I, I have it. I have, I'm, a, I'm anxious about them. Yeah, <laughs> well, but, you know, but then it's kind of like, you know, you could be in a kind of syndicalist position of like, holy shit, the whole society is exploiting the workers, including like the poor people who don't even have a job or exploiting the labor of the workers. Like you could... No, it's plausible. The reason that I say that is because otherwise we'll be blindsided, right? These things crop up, right? There yeah, are these that's, tendencies. That's an, yeah, from my way of thinking, that's just erroneous thinking. That's just the wrong. It's like asking. It's a you category know, error. It is. Yeah, it's a category error. Right. But it, it, if you think that the problem is the exploitation of labor, you will go there. Yeah. If you, yeah, if you think that. The contradiction yeah. is around arises around the exploitation of labor by labor, okay, or by everybody, right? But right, and but we themselves because it's their labor that's being exploited, right? Then end right. up looking like they're exploited by everybody, which of course they are, right? But, but exploitation is this. You just need to think of that as a technical term. It's not a moral category, you well, know. But in a political movement, how can you keep? from being a moral category. In other words, if, if, if people are mobilized to fight against their exploitation politically. So you don't, you don't struggle to be, to stop, to, to be treated fairly. You struggle for your fucking freedom. Well, let's you're hope. being restrained. You're being restrained and you're being suppressed and you're being corralled and but you're you being know, mistreated. Right, just rebel against their exploitation and in other words this is where you'd need social but they never really will uh, then the way to correct that will be don't worry we'll we'll give you a raise will um the way to correct that feeling of exploitation will be oh well we'll go to war on another nation and it's worked so far right and so then you'll be paid 
you'll be paid much better. And for a little while, maybe everyone will get a home. And I don't know that the workers ever said that war was good because they'll get more. I don't think that, that ever worked. No, but that's the solution. The solution is to move it out, uh, you know, to to do uneven development and to get cheap well, capital over could, here. You could, you could try to mobilize the working class against workers of nations, yes, in a variety right. of different ways. You could. Right. And that's a way to try to address a feeling of victimization around exploitation, which arises basically by saying, hey, I'm not getting a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. Could just be as simple as protectionism trade protectionism like mm -hmm. we should keep jobs in the u.s and not send them to check because you know we're starving here or we're opioid addicted here and look at all the chinese are working now and those are our jobs right right exactly but then but that's a spontaneous thing that the working class the trade union consciousness you know yeah lenin talked about it. and and not only lenin by the way so lenin gets saddled with a lot that's like the general framework of the second international is that the trade union consciousness of the working class has to be superseded by socialist consciousness. And that comes from the bourgeois intellectuals who have this sense of history that the immediacy of struggle will always kind of crowd out, right? It will always be like, well, we need to get this now rather than thinking, where does this fit into the long arc of history and not the 4,000 years long arc of history, but, but for the last 200 years, say, yeah, something like that. Yes, exactly. Or, you know, even just the last few generations, you know, like you yeah. can grasp a trajectory more recently and you could say, like, where does our struggle fit in with how things right. have been going? And, you know, but again, generally the immediacy of struggle, this is why it's not like you need socialist intellectuals, but you need a party, right? You need a party to say, look, there's actually another goal here. It's like the workers here struggling against this now right, right. There's, there's a long-term goal here and that's where the question of freedom comes because otherwise people are like i'm dying here you know right and so freedom is kind of like a, a nice idea right but unless you concretely have a sense of okay i'm part of a project mm. has goal you know and all of our struggles are towards that goal without that it's easy to say, you know, yeah, I'm a socialist, but in the meantime, you know, my neighbor is kind of shafting me over here. Mm -hmm. Welcome. I got to survive, you know? If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.